What's up, world? This is the Up Watching Hawaii podcast. I'm Smurf. And this is your guy, Sai, and we watch the games that you can't stay up to. And we also watch the combat sports as well. We are hosted live in the Say Less podcast Discord server. Shout out to the Say Less podcast of Kaz, Loki, and Rosie. And we are also affiliated with the Otaku Fight Club podcast, hosted by yours truly. And we are also affiliated with the Sips Tea podcast, hosted by Genesis and C Saint, a rapper and a battle rapper out of Buffalo, New York. All the links to everything described here are in the bottom of the description, and we'll get started with the show. Hey, what's up, world? Ski Mask Murphy. I'm doing an episode solo. Uh, you know, we've been on hiatus. It's been difficult during the holiday season to get everybody to have free time to all come together and, and do an episode. So I'm doing this one solo. And also, we're changing up the format a little bit. And hopefully, y'all like it. Going to be recording segments about each topic a little bit separately and splice them together to make sure, you know, every topic is a little bit more concise instead of just trying to flow between everything here and there to give you guys more of, you know, a punctual, topical podcast. Let me know you guys like it. Respond in the comments, no matter where you're listening to this, whether it's YouTube, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, we out here. And currently, my, there there's football on a Tuesday, January 4th, after all the New Year's Bowls. Literally, right now, Kansas State is going to halftime versus LSU. A 7-16 playing a 6-16 in Texas in a bowl game sponsored by Tax Act. Yeah, this is where we are. But all the topics I'm going to go over today, I'm going to get into a good amount of things we missed during the hiatus. You know, going to get into some of the happenings going on in UFC, including, for some reason, Jake Paul. And Dana White beefing. Wouldn't expect that from our 2022 bingo card, but we're starting off the year. This is where we are. Of course, we're going to get into the college football playoffs. And we're going to have to discuss Antonio Brown having yet another incident where he looks crazy, but sort of might be the smartest man in the room like he was during the whole Oakland Raiders incident for a week. Let's talk about free agency in college football and the madness that's occurring there. Washington football team is finally going to get a name. Hopefully. I'll get into that. Some of the background on that. I'm saying hopefully. And then, of course, got to give a big rest in peace to the big man, John Madden. And let's get into it. At 85 years old this past week, we lost a one John Earl Madden. Arguably, probably the most influential man in the sport of football. Which, by luck of the draw, sort of sort of happened on accident. With him becoming the coach that he was, then a broadcaster. Um, man was a two-way all-conference lineman for Cal Poly back in 1958. Yeah, well, way back in the day and surprisingly a lot of y'all gonna be surprised to hear this the man was a 21st round draft pick yeah it's ridiculous who why does football teams need 21 rounds versus draft picks who knows but that's what they were doing back then 
over, over 20 plus rounds. It's a lot of sports were doing that back then. I mean, even right now, I mean, MLB players union are trying to work things out, but they still do 40 rounds worth of draft picks. Yeah. But the NFL back then was 21 rounds in. John Madden, he was shaping up to be, you know, a decent backup lineman starting out, but rookie camp got a permanent knee injury. And so he was just sitting there in camp. And but every day he was in the room watching film with Norm Van Brocklin while he was injured. And so from there, Norm Van Brocklin told him to, hey, maybe try your hands at coaching. He was like, Norm was like, bro, you, you already got a teaching degree. That's surprising to find out about Madden, but sort of not surprising. And so from there worked his way up. Worked his way up. Worked his way all the way up to coach being a linebacker coach for the Oakland Raiders, then the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. Then history was written. I mean, head coach of the Raiders for ten seasons, only missed the playoffs twice. After his third season of coaching, had a whole ownership change, whole regime change, which normally means when, when things change at the top. Things change at the bottom as well, but for some reason Al Davis saw something in John Madden and said, hey, this is the guy who won't get a Super Bowl. And four seasons in a row, failing the playoffs, season five, hey, Madden got that Super Bowl 11, baby. And Al Davis, as he said, just won, baby, and that's what it was about. I mean, that's, that's more of a backstory who Madden is, but I think the one thing to talk about is, like, who Madden is to the generations down the line. I, I will get into the video game that I hate in a little bit. But for me coming up, you know, I'm a little bit older, born in 92. So to me, John Madden was probably the greatest sports announcer ever. Like, up there with... The Joe Bucks, John Bucks of the world, you know, the um, Jimmy Lennon Juniors. I mean, he even worked with Pat Summerall, Vince Scully. He worked with those other greats. And to me, he was far beyond them because the one thing John Madden did, which for better or worse, he turned the mystique of the head coach into the cult of the head coach. Because Madden was one of the few guys who understood football and explained it from the base point, starting with the most important thing, which is your lineman on the trenches of offense and defense. He started there because before John Madden, nobody was talking about X's and O's starting with your lineman. John Madden was showing you, hey, this is the way this play works. This is, this is, I remember the first time learning how a counter trade was supposed to work. I just thought, oh, the running back just is a very good runner, and he just runs the play. But it's like, no, Madden was breaking it down step by step. Like, hey, here's what the offensive line is doing. Just seeing what the offensive line and D-line are doing, he knows exactly what's happening behind the O-line and behind the defensive line. That he doesn't even have to actually see what the rest of the play is happening. John Madden would call plays happening after just seeing what the O-line and D-line did in that first second. And, and know exactly where the quarterback's going with the ball on a pass play. Don't even know the routes. He just knows this is how the D-line's blitzing, this is how the O-line is blocking. 
This is where it's going. And of course, that man was the king of using a telestrator. If y'all don't know what that is, that's when you see them draw little lines over stuff on TV. Back in the day, it was mostly just the yellow lines. See them draw on TV? That's the telestrator. John Madden was the king of doing that. And then also, he made it fun. Because he had jokes forever. Like, he even got one time, one time had the graphics department drop a whole graphic of, like, a draft personality on a Gatorade cooler. I mean, one time he used, used a telestrator to roast Troy Eggman for the fact that Troy can't grow a beard. And that was that. And John Madden, he was extremely colorful, funny, also knew the game, explained the game, told you exactly how this play worked, made you have an appreciation for all the players besides the star players. Made you appreciate guys like Orlando Pace. You know, these big old linemen who just took guys out and destroyed them. And for defensive linemen, breaking down the new techniques that they were coming, with, coming up with. He's the first person to explain um, how Howie Long and Reggie White were perfecting the hump move. If you all don't know what that is, go look that up. It's a, it's a classic move and technique that D linemen had to start using as these offensive tackles got more athletic to combat these speed rushing guys like Lawrence Taylor. And then John Mendel's first guy to break down, hey, this is Dwight Freeney and Julius Peppers. Seeing these two guys coming out of college, they're going to be problems because they're innovating using a new spin move on the defensive line. And John Mendel was explaining how, you know, this defensive spin move is counterintuitive to every defensive teaching, and as in don't turn your back to the guy who's blocking you. Because he's just going to put you on the ground. And John Maddox is playing and breaking that down. And then, for me as a kid, from seeing him on TV, then going into what will ultimately be his legacy moving forward of the video games. He was in the video games. In the early days, until about the transition from PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3. To that era. He was in all those PS2 games and everything before that. He gave the commentary. Instead of ask coach for help, it was literally ask Madden. And when you press ask Madden for a play, you will literally hear his voice come out of the game and tell you, hey, uh, uh, it's third and short. Uh, the offensive line up in the, in the out formation close. You should probably go out of the set, out of the 3-4, make sure you got a blitz going because they're probably going to run the ball. And then you pick the play, and that play works. Just the way the man said it. It was something magical about it. And I mean, he also gave full input into the game to try to make each game more representative of football, each iteration, make it better. I mean, he's the whole reason we got the ProTac engine back when that happened. If you guys remember that, that was an engine that allowed multiple tacklers to attach, multiple ways to attach to a tackle animation. So instead of it always being just one, one tackler, one ball carrier. It wants to be an attack, tackler, ball carrier. Three tacklers pile on. Three linemen get involved and help push the pile. It was, it was innovative. Wish they brought that back. And even to the point where there used to be a point where it's called Madden School. If you just generally learn the plays and he'd explain it. He'd be like, hey, here's <laughs> Spider 2 Y Banana. <laughs> And he'd explain to you 
All right, this is the first option. This is the first option here. This is, how to, this is who this place actually supposed to go to. And the general setup of these plays. This is your key guy on defense who you, see, who you need to watch. And he'd break it down bit by bit for all kinds of plays. It'd be like practice mode, except John Maddox talking to you. You pick a play, he tells you how to run it. And it was magical. And I mean, but now, hopefully, his legacy is not extremely tarnished because also on the same day he died, literally, half of the Madden video game community were locked out of their accounts, either fully banned or temporarily suspended because the game has fallen so far behind and the development has gotten so awful that people hate the game. I mean, for two seasons straight, we've seen Twitter protests making it to, you know, the the tr top of the trending page of, hey, EA, EA fix Madden, NFL drop EA. And I think that's one thing I hope gets better, even though looking like it's not going to get better, is that it's a game that's fallen so poor, poor in quality that it's less representative of football when John Madden was involved in the PS2 than it is now in the PS4 and 5. That I hope it does not tarnish this man's legacy moving forward. People just think, oh, Madden is just a name associated to putting out shitty video games. Should be elevated to the point where it reflects the knowledge and intelligence that he had. It's like, you know, I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into it. I didn't want to get too deep into it. Yo, okay, so. In certain video games, there's things that are called, you know, legacy code. I'm getting into computer terminology right now. It's called legacy code. Like, things that are left over from previous, from previous iterations of a game that stay in there, and they still function the same. Most of the time, legacy code, maybe RPGs and things like that. Maybe it's like, two or three games behind they've kept something in they eventually get rid of it so you know you're talking about something around a five to six year stretch of one piece of code or technology that's in a game that stays the same until it eventually gets updated and just completely redone or reworked over okay in madden the whole game is nothing but legacy code piled on top of legacy code so it's, it's like all the code from something initially long ago, and it's still just all new things being piled on top of it and none of the old stuff taken out to be corrected and fully redone. Like the Madden you're currently playing now is all Madden 25. Whatever was in, aka Madden 14. Whatever was in, whatever was in Madden that released in 2013 is still all in the exact same game. Nothing's changed. And that's awful. And I hate it. And then there's also things in the game that you can go back and look at. One of the biggest things that proved legacy code is that the play action blocking animations and intelligence and assignments are still the same as Madden 2006. Yes. Game that released in 2015. Coming up on being a 17-year-old game. They're still using the same play action, pass blocking, 
animations, assignments, and intelligence from then till now. And it's not good. No pockets created. Nothing like that. Now I'm not going to get too deep in a rant. For anybody listening to this who participates in the Madden Ultimate Team community, I hate you guys, but I do feel sorry for the fact that you guys found a way to get very good cards cheaply without having to either spend a whole bunch of money or grind endlessly. And then eSports punish you guys for that. And then while you guys are punished for it, the people, no one was at EA's offices to correct the wrongdoing they did. So y'all just stuck. And I feel sorry for that. And I don't want this to become part of this great man's legacy. And that's all I can really say on John Madden. One of the probably going to go down to the greatest sportscaster ever. Easily the greatest football sportscaster ever. He changed everything that happens in the booth. During this brief intermission, I just wanted to remind all our listeners that we are available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and we also have a Twitter account where you guys can interact with us and catch up with us, see our ideas on some things happening between our podcast episodes. Links will always be down in the description. And now back to the action. Well, 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 once again, we have another insane... Antonio Brown story. Seems like, well, let's say once a year, but last year, everything was quiet for AB. Not too much happening is going on en route to that Super Bowl. But on Sunday, uh, middle of the third quarter, out of nowhere, you see what the video that's currently being looped on screen right now for those watching on YouTube. For those who haven't seen it, just Google Antonio Brown and you'll know exactly what happened. Well, see exactly what happened on field, on video. So, he takes off his shoulder pads, starts throwing his gear into the crowd. During the middle of the play, walks through the middle of the end zone and starts jumping and leaving, throwing the peace sign up to the Jets crowd. I mean, Tampa eventually comes back and wins this game after being down two two touchdowns in middle of the third quarter. But that's not the real story. It's Antonio Brown. Immediately, everyone starts calling him in. Crazy, saying it's a mental health issue. Oh, no, he's going crazy, yada, yada, yada. But when you see the initial full video... The full lean version of what exactly goes down. Of initially, Mike Evans trying to stop him. And then he takes off his shoulder pads and everything. Let you know, you know, this is, you know, Antonio Brown's not going crazy. This isn't CT. This is no Devontae's Burfitt hit, as everybody loves to bring up. It's obvious seeing that Mike Evans going over Chapter 7 that something was said to Antonio Brown right before this video occurred. I mean, Apparently, someone saw something to the point that they said, hey, I should probably pull up my phone and record this because either a fight's about to happen or a fight may have just been happening and they were only able to catch the tail end of it. And immediately, we just see this. We see he takes off 
hits the tunnel, and we think Antonio Brown's gone from New York City and gone from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, let's go with the first one. Antonio Brown is not gone from the Buccaneers. Well, no, let me let me go with the first one. Antonio Brown's not gone from New York City. He's, he shows up the next day. He's at the Nets game, sitting courtside. After he called an Uber to get him from the stadium in the middle of the game. Which are also because of him. And his Uber who picked him up. And the guy looks like, I mean, if the guy didn't say a word in the video, I, you would have convinced me the guy was Seth Rogen. Turns out, it's not Seth Rogen. But, it's as close you can get to be Seth Rogen without being Seth Rogen. So he turns up at the next game the next day. So as I'm talking about this, this is, you know, two days afterwards. This is Tuesday after Sunday. Immediately after the game, Bruce Arians hits the, hits the, they got some question. He makes it very, he's like, Antonio Brown's no longer a buck. Let's not talk about Antonio. Let's talk about the guys who stayed here and played the whole game. Let's get back to that. And that was the end of it. And so, it's on Tuesday. Antonio Brown still has not been released or waived by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, Bruce Arians told a clear lie. Starting out, man, still a Buccaneer. And then, you know, more details come out. As everybody assumed would come out, but from everything we have, it's seen, it, the story is that in the middle of the third quarter, Antonio Brown says to the coaching staff, hey, my ankle does not feel good enough for me to go. I don't feel good enough. I'm going to get it worked out a little bit more by the trainer and see how I feel after that. Then they tell him, no, go in. We don't care. Then he says, no, I don't think I'm good enough to go. Then a little bit of a back and forth. Then he is told to leave. To leave the whole team. Not, you know, hey, give us your helmet. You're done for the game. He's told to leave. Like, he's told, hey, you, you're off the team. For refusing to go in while injured. You know, there's a lot of mind over matter and stuff like that. But if anybody out there has ever had an ankle injury, in play sports, you know, if you actually do push it to the limit, actually get it to the point where you're going to be sidelined for weeks, you also know that lower body injuries tend to linger for about a year or two. So Antonio Brown is trying to protect his investment, which is himself, you know, in a game that, for the most part, really doesn't matter because Tampa Bay have already locked up their division and there's really n they're not going to be fighting for um, home field advantage in the playoffs. So, I sent around, I was like, hey, let's live to fight another day. And I'm on AB side with this one. Because, I mean, remember when with the Raiders, where it seemed like, hey, and Tony Brown was wilding out, but then it also seemed like he's the smartest man in the world from working his way, working his way from the Oakland Raiders to the New England Patriots to play with Tom Brady, and immediately going to get in two, get in like two catches for like 40 yards and a TD. 
But that was after, you know, more shenanigans happened at Oakland, in which, you know, he called that GM a white-ass cracker. And then they decided to do things to basically give him certain punishments that would void his con- the guarantees of his contract at that point in time. Which the only reason he won- he signed with the Raiders is because they gave him a very big guaranteed contract. And so, this seems to be another situation where they want to think Antonio Brown's going crazy. But, he's not. And let's switch over to another detail that's lingering in the background as well. As Antonio Brown was eight receptions and 50 yards away from receiving two levels of incentives, which for him would have been, you know, two thirds of a million more. So six, so six hundred sixty-six thousand six hundred sixty-six dollars more on a year, but. People are like, oh, he left that on the table, but if you can see what I currently have on the screen, he didn't leave. He left that on the table, but also he was already paid up $3 million for the year already, so you can tell that it's definitely not not about the money for Antonio Brown. And I mean, when you sacrifice his career earnings, he's, he's already good, you know? He doesn't have to play for the money anymore. He can play for, you know, the love of the game for the People giving him respect that he feels he deserves as a man. And, you know, best wishes to A.B. I mean, his exit was very, um... Well, I wouldn't even say Vontae Davis, like... Because Vontae knew he didn't have the sauce in the engine no more. Quit at halftime, they didn't really make a spectacle of it. We more so did. But, hey. Shout-outs to A.B. They said they was going to cut him immediately after the game. And, look, still out here thriving. Let's go. During this brief intermission, I just wanted to remind all our listeners that we are available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and we also have a Twitter account where you guys can interact with us and catch up with us, see our ideas on some things happening between our podcast episodes. Links will always be down in the description. And now back to the action. And on to a more interesting story that sprung up out of nowhere today. The Washington football team is announcing on Groundhog's Day possibly their new name or maybe their three name finalists that they hope are finalists legally. Because uh, let's, let's, just, let's just go back to how this whole thing started. The Washington football team formerly named the Washington Redskins, which was a team name that, um, that, um, of course, racist, that, of course, Native American First Nations people were not too fond of. And, yeah, and then to try to keep that team name, try to make people think things are cool, they used a poll after the Washington Post was bought by Big Bezos, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, which is basically a magazine that publishes a lot of stuff to protect billionaires and millionaires' interests. They posted a fake study 
conducted by conducted by a person at the news organization that basically said only nine percent of Native American people are offended by the team name. When, but then someone else two years later was like they looked into it. I was like, yeah, it seems like bullshit. And they went back and analyzed it. Went back and actually went to real Native American reservations and went through it and said, yeah, our response says 65% of people are offended. 65% of Native Americans are offended by this name. And then, yeah, then the whole push happened. Name gets taken away. And everybody's, and then the common thing that everybody asked was, wait, why'd they not immediately, you know, have a whole new name ready to go? Why are they just the football team? And as I'm scrolling through now, you know, showing a whole lot of concepts that people came up with at the time, he was like, oh, here are great team names. You can go with this, you can go with that. I mean, the common one that came up was the Washington Veritas, which a lot of black people weren't feeling, in which their surviving Tuskegee Airmen weren't feeling because that was the nickname for the Tuskegee Airmen because you know racism they was like hey these are U.S. planes but to distinguish that y'all aren't white airmen we're gonna paint your tails red so that was why that didn't happen and then let me just switch over to the most prominent thing that occurred everybody was dead set on the Washington Red Wolves Ooh-wee. People were loving it. And this is after a few instances of going through and the Red Wolves ended up the same as the ones before it because they had a list of like 30 names initially that they wanted people to vote on. Like that 30 names, only about four or five of those names were actually available for Washington to use because people bought the copyright and trademark to those names. And you would ask, well, you know, those only last for 20 years. When could those people have gotten it? Literally a year before Washington got rid of the Redskins name and decided to become straight up just the football team, there was about 50 different copyrights and trademarks that they had already owned that expired just in case they would have ever been forced to change the team name for racial insensitivity, which basically means you already know team names racially insensitive. But you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do it just to do it, just to flex it. Hey, I can be racist as I want to. No one's going to stop me. Then you finally get stopped and everybody's bought up your copyright trademarks and names. And so that's why the search has lasted really a lot longer than it ever should have. Because either they're trying to find a name that they could use, could use, doesn't hasn't been trademarked, or they've been negotiating, you know, buying out someone's trademark copyright on the name that they chose that they wanted. Because initially, you know. A lot of people were being asked by the Washington organization, which, I mean, if you've seen 
and heard about the things that have gone down, is it not a great? I mean, literally just this week, Jalen Hurts almost got killed because the railing gave out very easily at the tunnel, which in most sports stadiums, that's the one railing that's way more extra secure because this, this wasn't even like, you know, like that good steel concrete type bollard into some con that's welded into some concrete type railing. This is just like, you know, this is like some wheeling stadium bleachers type railing. Like, this this shouldn't be in a stadium. I mean, I live, you know, Richmond, Virginia, you know, it's two hours south of D.C., but I don't even know how far it is to get to Landover, Maryland. Yeah, oh, that's something else you should know. The stadium's not even actually in D.C. I think it's, like, 45 minutes outside of the city limits. So, like, yeah, it's a horrible fan experience. I've heard stories, I mean, my dad, neighbors have gone to games, and they said, and almost regardless of what game it's been, probably within the last five to six years, it's been, it's almost never been Washington fans in the stands. I remember, um, oh, uh, I'm a Dallas fan, so there was a, uh, two years ago, right before the pandemic hit, I remember there was a Dallas-Washington game, games at Washington. Amari Cooper makes a catch, and audibly on the TV, you can hear Coop, which is, you know, a lot of sports teams have their fans have a nice call, have a call out for one specific player when they get to touch the ball. Sort of like how Green Bay used to do John Coon. You know, everyone has it. And so, it's been seen like they have no fan support there because they've made a horrible situation. You, I mean, I just mentioned Jalen Hurst thing. You also have the incidents with, um, I think earlier this season, you had an incident where one of the sanitary sewer pipes, which one of the pipes that has all the poo, uh, started leaking onto fans on the lower levels in the stadium. Then, uh, yeah, last year he had like the, the urinals exploded at the stadium. It's It's been a whole constant stream of just, this isn't a great place you want to be. But, no, back to this whole name thing. Like, they have no copyrights. Initially, they were trying to pay people only like a couple million to get the names, but it's like, hey, you know they're going to probably keep this name for at least the next 20 years or forever. So, people want their kickback. So, who knows how much they pay for it if they just found one, but this is interesting. They're finally changing the team name. We'll see if this actually works out in the end. Or they might have to do a whole another round of, hey, we can't use his name because someone else already bought the trademark, which was probably one of the ones we already have for the past 50 years. Eh, let's see what happens. Um, oh yeah, yeah ju just to reiterate what I was saying about the whole Red Wolves thing and how the names are being taken. Yeah, why the Wolves won't work. Released by Washington from the team president in a briefing. Everybody buying up all their stuff. Sad times out here in these streets. During this brief intermission, I just wanted to remind all our listeners that we are available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and we also have a Twitter account where you guys can interact with us and catch up with us, see our ideas on some things happening between our podcast episodes. Links will always be down in the description. And now back to the action. Okay. So, before getting into 
the wild fucking west that is free agency of coaches and players in college football. I had to go back to the college football coach who people say is great and say, R.I.P. Bozo. Smoking on that urban pack. This nigga got fired in dramatic fashion. I mean, like, this goes back to, like, whew, with him it goes back so far of, like, all the shenanigans and fuck shit he's gotten into over the years and the shit he's covered up and all, and everything, like, okay, let's put it this way. If it wasn't for Tim Tebow being the face of, like, that 07 through 09 Gators, University of Florida Gators teams, Holy shit. Urban Meyer would be in fucking jail right now. Because, hey, big Michigan over here, baby. Alum, graduate. They said uh, Jimmy Harbaugh was, you know, hating a little bit when he said, you know, well, wherever Urban Meyer goes, you know, after he leaves, there's always controversy. People thought he was hating, but, you know, let's start from back to front. When he left, Ohio State, fuck shit happened that hit the fan. When he left University of Florida, fuck shit that happened hit the fan. When he left the University of Utah, the Utes shot them out, Mountain West. Shit hit the fan. I mean, it packs off now, but still Mountain West, baby. That's what the love is. Shit hit the fan. Bowling, the University of Bowling Green, he coached there too. After he left, controversy happened and shit hit the fan. And I mean... And you think about the amount of college coaches who come straight into the NFL and, you know, they typically don't have that great of success. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury's doing all right. Matt Rule is going through the growing pain, similar to how Nick Saban was. Matt Rule probably might end up coming back down. But, you know, even with Nick Saban, you know, there's certain aspects of the NFL game versus the college game that are different, you know. The biggest thing is you're not the king. You're not the king. You're not kingmaker in the NFL versus college. You don't have unilateral control of all of your players. I mean, Nick Saban, I know one of his things was like, you know, he didn't have unilateral control over the whole roster to be able to build it the way he wanted to build it. You know, GM's got input, owners got input, and can override him at any point. You know, Nick Saban said that was one of the things he had to work with. The coaching aspect, he was he was getting there, but, you know, they let him go, you know. And, you know, now we got this goddamn dynasty that we can't fucking get rid of. Fucking hate it. Hate it. But yeah, Urban Meyer thought he just, you know, do the same shit he was doing in college. And that shit doesn't fucking fly. And this nigga got fired in the most dramatic fashion. I don't, I don't think I know of any coach who's been fired literally, after, literally during his first season ever coaching in the NFL. Ugh shit show. But let's get on to the wild wild fucking west that's going on out here. Because shit is brazy. But first I just want to start off with one of the bigger coaching moves. Bro. Brian Kelly and his fucking fake southern accent. That shit is hilarious. Listen to this. 
<laughs> he really trying to be Cajun. It's it's just one of the it's just fucking hilarious to see. Like, bro, come on, you never sounded like that with the fighting Irish. Can you do that? But yeah, that's one coaching move that shocked the world. But uh, I mean, going going from Notre Dame to the SEC, you just. You're just putting yourself in trouble. Yeah, you built a great program there at Notre Dame. You were kingmaker. You got out a very good legacy. I mean, you barely missed barely missed out on, on making the, the playoffs this season. You know, Georgia would have been Georgia. You guys would have been in there, but hey, it is what it is. Now let's go to the next coaching move. Instead of someone going into the SEC, someone wiggled his way out of the SEC. And it's snatching up. Every fucking body. And fucking Lincoln Riley. This man is... Man, he's flipping recruits better than niggas was flipping bricks on a wire. Like, he... He's, he is... I don't know what he doing. I don't know what kind of shit... What kind of magic does he got. This man... If you think recruiting right now is a wild wild west... Lincoln Riley, like, was like, Hey, I'm going over here... Damn near every four and five star player in the country is like, well, bye bye Oklahoma. We going back to where it's all good. And I mean, Lincoln Riley, it, I mean, great football coach all around, but more importantly, he's been a quarterback guru, getting guys, let's see, Jalen Hurts, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, very good line of quarterbacks. He's led to being in the NFL, starring, well, starring, that's a little bit of a loose word to use there, but they're starting. They're starters. I will say that they they are starters in the NFL. I'm not going to say any more. I'm not going to say any names of who might not be a starter next year, but, I mean, if you watch the NFL, you know the vibes. But, um, yeah, Lincoln Riley has turn heads, I mean, I have a little insight until that I'm not going to say where I got it from, but I know that, I mean, it's already come out a little bit as well, too, but I know with the whole Spencer Rattler, Caleb Williams situation, that back and forth of who's going to be leader in the locker room, that sort of lost the favor of, of a good amount of players on the team. Whether or not they were for either guy was just sort of back and forth, not knowing what was going on and not being clear. A lot of players didn't feel that, so it was it left the perfect opportunity for him to be able to leave. Then his cornerback coach, who was still working for Oklahoma under OG Bob Stoops, shout out Bob Stoops for coming in. I mean, since Bob Stoops has retired, him, Bob Stoops, and Lincoln Riley have won the same amount of bowl games. Just saying. But that coach was recruiting for USC while still supposed to be working for Oklahoma. That was crazy. And yeah, this Wild West is get, getting even more wild because moving on to, I mean, still adjacent to Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams announced he's answering the goddamn transfer portal and saying Oklahoma's still an option. But I mean, as soon as he answered, I mean, like, 
all eyes would immediately been like, hey, he's going to USC. With everything going on in the rumor mill and a lot of rumblings that are coming up to the surface. Is that, I mean, being that we're in the wild west of this, Mike Mike Leach and, um, well, Mike Leach is just complaining because he, he's losing player control, but um, Elaine Kiffin had a very good complaint from the standpoint of, hey, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, deal with your team and stay stable because, you know, you guys leaving out of bowl games and leaving late in the season because in the transfer portal, you know, you got country from the colleges coming over and, and promising players, hey, you come with us, you're going to make this amount of money through NIL, yada, 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 which is illegal, which Elaine Kiffin has said, also said, that's illegal. The only thing we can, the only thing you're legal about to tell players is like, here, here's what such and such athlete got in NIL deals. And then Lane Kiffin, like, and here's it relative to their own field performance. So you get, you know, plot, it, plot a little graph on it. Like, here's their own field performance the, the year before and the year of. This is how much they had going into the year. This is how much actually got during the year. Relative to their performance. You know, so like kids know, hey, if you had Old Miss, shout out to the uh, I can't say shout out to the Rebels because they, they they Confederates and shit like that. Can't say that, but shout out to the University of Mississippi. Mm, that didn't even sound good coming out of my mouth. Shout out Lane Kiffin and the wonderful program. He well, the program that he coaches not wonderful. But shout out, shout out to them down there in that in that place. And that hey yeah, this is what happens if if you come here. This this is the potential. This is the potential. These are the numbers that are just frankly available. The thing with Caleb Williams is that the the rumblings that are coming up is basically every SEC team not named goddamn Alabama is offering him money in the range of one to three million dollars to come QB for them. That's just out there. That's what it seems like. People are trying trying to buy Caleb Williams and that's I mean, it's it's really one of the worst kept secrets in college sports that hey, there's there's been under under the table deals, panties players, but it's it now because they can do it on front shooting different ways. The money's a lot bigger than it was. I mean, thing. I mean, based off the situation that happened with Cam Newton, you run the numbers to compare it to uh, inflation for things that were going on. If you watched the Pony Excess documentary. I mean, 30 for 30, about, uh, you got Eric Dickerson and the SMU and how they got the death penalty. Basically, just for inflation, the going rate for a for a quarterback or running back who, who would have changed the um, the course of your program would have been around $250,000 to buy that player. But there was an article back then that came out around the time with the Cam Newton thing of... Uh, I think it was Rutgers, Drexel University. They ran the numbers and was like, "Hey, the numbers for a a Heisman, a Heisman hype kind of quarterback, based on Johnny Manziel, the school can afford to pay him about one and a half million dollars to play ball there." And you know, that was Caleb Williams right there in that conversation. But it's been a scene. It's been a shit show. I mean. Given the name of our podcast, we also have to bring up that, um, yeah, University of Hawaii, Q, 
kids had a falling out with the head with the head coach. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers recent recently, but like two weeks ago, bas- basically about twenty twenty five players from the University of Hawaii football program put their names into the transfer portal, including nine starters. That lets you know, hey, things aren't going the way they're intended to at that program. And that's that was just a large number. That was a shocker. I mean, you expect kids to leave, but god damn. Nine starters? Nine guys that could come back and play, and they was like, nah, we out. We ain't trying to sit on the beach. It's nice and wonderful over here, but this ain't it. This ain't the vibe. But also speaking on the transport and big deals being spread about, got major rumors that happened because someone by the name of Coach Prime was able to do the unheard of. You know, formerly number one ranked number one ranked recruit on ESPN's recruiting, but ranked number one everywhere else. Max Preps, 24-7 Sports Rivals. Five-star quarterback Travis Hunter. Deion Sanders gets him to come play for Jackson State University. I mean, like, outside of the HBU aspect, which I will get to, This is the first time of any note with all the sites since they've been attracting since ESPN since 2006, 24-7 sports, so they go back. Rivals, as deep as they go back. Um, who else am I, can I think about? 24-7 sports, as far as they go back. All these big recruiting, tracking websites and publications, because, I mean, Rivals was a newspaper. Well, newspaper slash magazine for a long time as well too for Yahoo bought them. They go back and track. This is the first time a five star recruit has been recruited to play for a non FBS or Division One single A school. First time in history, someone's been able a player has been pulled straight out of high school. I mean, you've had the five star guys, you know fuck off a little bit, then get sent back and have to go down and play at the lower levels. This is the first time straight out of high school. Straight recruited straight out of high school. Five star. Didn't didn't play quote unquote big time football. And then that's just a testament to Deion Sanders and his capabilities and what he's been able to do. Because originally, remember, Deion Sanders, he wanted to coach at Florida State. He wanted a head coaching job. They didn't get that to him, so he went to Jackson State. And I think it was a very good decision for him, it turns out. And I mean, look at the program he's building. And then I'm getting, now getting to the HBCU aspect of it. He's building up the H- HBCUs. HBCU football is back what it used to be. Bef- I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories and talk about how, you know, there was a push to actually get actually get rid of HBC football in a way in a way because that's where you know a lot of the talent is coming out of but I'll get to that later but he's building back up HBCUs to the national recognition of what they used to be I mean he went on um NFL Network and talked about it and then um 
he's able to have as much time as he wanted to on the I Am Athlete podcast. Shout out to them. Shout out B. Marsh, Freaky Fred Taylor, Channing Crowder, and uh, Ocho Cinco. He's able to go on there and talk about how um, two years straight, there wasn't a single player drafted out of HBCU. Within history, you know, normally there's one or two guys down the list, but he's like, multiple seasons in a row for like too many seasons out of like the past decade. No guys out of those schools have been drafted. And I mean, he's even so, even more so upset because this is right after the COVID seasons where FCS football, which features two HBCU programs, all of them played in the spring on ESPN. So they had primetime TV and availability easily to be seen at any time. So they could have easily been scouting. He saw, and he was upset that not even from Jackson, not even from Jackson State, not from his school, because because the best player that year was was playing on um was playing on um uh Florida A and M University, FAMU Rattlers. They had a good season as well this year. Was playing on their roster and didn't get any any draft scouting, and he was upset by that, which. This year has led to the creation of the HBCU Legacy Bowl, similar to the other, what are called Shrine Games, similar to the East-West Bowl, the North-South Bowl, and the, um, the Senior Bowl, where, where NFL scouts can come in and get hands-on work, hands-on work and get to look at these, these guys who they might want to draft, you know, get time and experience to talk to these guys, pick their brains, see how they can pick up NFL concepts and things like that. He's changed that. He's, I mean, the Celebration Bowl was something that was already happening, you know, because because the FCS playoffs is not really beneficial to any team to actually be in as far as making money. You, you For the most part, if you can't fill out your stadium, fill out your stadium during a playoff game, you're losing money because all the ticket sales go directly to the NCAA, which is some bullshit. But he's done that. I mean, they got beat by South Carolina State. They HBC football. They guys are turning up. And then, of course, when this happened, you know, all the conspiracy theories came out. People shitting on HBC football. And then, um, Deion Sanders had to come out and say, "Hey, there's a long history of HBCUs when it comes to football in the NFL. I mean, even when you." When you look at it, look if you just look if you just take a time and look at the state of Mississippi by itself, as far as which colleges have put guys in the NFL, guys who put guys in the NFL, the HBC the HBCUs in the state of Mississippi versus the PWIs of the state of Mississippi, more guys have come out have come out of HBCUs. I mean, if we if we want to talk about Hall of Famers. Jackson State has four of them. Led by Walter Brayton has four of them alone. Mississippi State ain't got none. I mean, best thing Mississippi State's got that could probably be listed. You got Dak Prescott. Dak, Dak's lighting it up. Cowboys. Love it. Lighting it up. You know? You got that. You got Mississippi Valley State. That's Jerry Rice and Deacon Jones. Two more Hall of Famers. I mean, even Northwest Mississippi Community College. 
community college in the state of Mississippi. That's what I got in the Hall of Fame. Versus the predominantly white institutions. You just got Old Miss got two linemen. Old Miss, aka University of Mississippi, got two linemen. Plus, more than likely, Eli Manning's on the way. And then, University of Southern Mississippi, you got Brett Favre and Ray Guy. So, in the state of Mississippi, more Hall of Famers have come out of these black colleges and universities. Also, also just throw in Alcorn State. Steve McNair came out of there, won an MVP. Southern Michigan got Brett Favre. Who's he throwing to? Shout out Alcorn State, Donald Driver. Multiple time Pro Bowler. HBCs had a long history in contributing to the NFL and contributing to the black community and America as a whole. And it's just messed up that people attempt to tear it down because it has such a long history and then things happen and were put in place and attempt to erase that. I mean, I mean, you see that right there, Doug Williams, Gramlin State, probably, probably, you know, for the long time seen as the pitiful the pinnacle of black college football under the direction of Eddie Robinson. I mean, the Coach of the Year Award is named after him. That was the record that Joe Paterno broke before, you know. I took the wins from Joe Paterno because Joe Paterno and had some things. Well, he didn't have some things going on. Jerry Sandusky had some things going on. Joe Paterno was like, we don't need the university associate. That's neither here nor there. But the amount of people shitting on HBCUs is something that hurt my heart deeply. As, you know, I, I graduated from the University of Michigan. But before that, I was in a degree program. I started out at Morehouse College. So I have, I have the HBC experience. I know it's like I know the kind of culture that it holds within the black community as a whole. And the things that is given the black community. And how it started out that I was, it was a place for the black community to get educated because we didn't have that opportunity. I mean, I was in Morehouse College. I currently live downtown Richmond, Virginia, right by the right near Virginia Commonwealth University. And I can walk to Virginia Uni Virginia Union University, which is also HBCU, which was a place like Morehouse College I was started purely just to teach slaves how to read. It was one of our only paths to get any kind of education, any kind of vocational training, literally, literally just to learn how to read. And things I saw on the internet, hopefully no one who listens to this podcast is one of those people who's doing that, were just horrible to see. HBCUs have contributed so much to this country and to football as a whole. And just overall greatness allowed out here that I just want people to appreciate it more and you know we're gonna make the MEAC and the SWAC the two prime divisions of the FCS it's a takeover baby we got one we're gonna get some more I mean Deion did just recently turn get um a four-star recruit who was at the University of South Carolina who was who had some issues and wasn't getting playing time. He's bringing them down. Going to get him under his tutelage. Hey, keep it rolling. Keep it rocking and shocking, baby. And, yeah, that's that on that. But remember, respect these HBCUs. And, 
Also, it's still a fucking minefield out there. Who who knows what else could happen? Who who knows? This guy did, even 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 Jim Harbaugh. They're saying he's about to go back to the NFL. I don't know what the fuck's gonna happen out here, man. It's a wild west of college football recruiting. It's free agency, purely all around. During this brief intermission, I just wanted to remind all our listeners that we're available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and we also have a Twitter account where you guys can interact with us and catch up with us, see our ideas on some things happening between our podcast episodes. Links will always be down in the description. And now back to the action. All right. Well, now the national championship game is set between Georgia and Bama, two SEC teams, unfortunately. But, you know, let's talk about how we got here. Let's first start with the fact that it was Bama beat Georgia in the SEC championship game to jump from being ranked number four to being ranked number one. Michigan put off an impressive run of a season that also included a very close loss to them goddamn motherfucking Spartans. But also beat Ohio State, beat Penn State, beat Iowa in the Big Ten championship game, booked our ticket. And, you know, Georgia ran through everyone who they played. They really didn't play anybody, let's be honest. But, impressive team nonetheless. I mean, they didn't, they didn't play Clemson to start the season, but Clemson wasn't who everybody thought they were. That became very apparent. But, um, in this Georgia team, played very well. They lost at Bama in the SEC championship game. And then, a surprise member, Cincinnati. We've waited a long time for this, man. I've been a Boise State fan since I was little, you know. The BCS Buster days. Been a long time for one of these small teams to get their shot and get an opportunity. The one thing I didn't like was, you know, all these college football analysts gaslighting us. Basically, goddamn saying, you know, oh yeah, Cincinnati got here, they deserved it. You know, the committee was always going to give it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, stop the bullshit. Gaslighting us. Bro, they had the schedule with Notre Dame four years ahead of time. And with the luck of the draw, Notre Dame was a very good team this season to boast of their shit. Because let's be honest, we've, we've, we've been here before. Let's go back to the first year football playoff 20-14 when TCU entered the final week ranked number 3 didn't beat their opponent about 50 plus points because they weren't allowed to have a conference championship game for the Big 12 so they just throttled their opponent as hard as they could put up 50 plus points show like hey we're an extremely good team we're beating the shit out of a we're beating the shit out of a Six, seven, one team. We're, you know, beat them guys. And then college football rankings are released. They go from third to six. Yeah. We've seen this before. 
And also, let's not act like if Oklahoma State doesn't hang on and beat Baylor, that Cincinnati would also still be sitting in this playoff. Like, let's, let's not even pretend. Because we all know that that's not fucking true. Oklahoma State beats Baylor. They're, they're fucking in there. A one-loss Cincinnati. Either Notre Dame or Houston, Cincinnati's not in there. Let's 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 be very clear. Cincinnati, damn, they had the fans had to beg for this shit to happen. And every good thing that needed to happen had to happen. You had to have basically two conferences auto cannibalize themselves. Well, not even two, three. Three conferences had to auto cannibalize themselves because you needed fucking. The Pac-12, you needed Utah to come out of, to come out of nowhere and spank Oregon like the other something. And also, Oregon somehow magically lost to fucking Stanford. Needed that to happen. Because Utah was a two-loss team who lost some pretty good opponents as well. And they came out of spanked Oregon twice back-to-back. So you had, needed that to happen. Clemson got exposed. Not being the team we thought they were. DJ is not that guy yet, unfortunately. Yeah, Clemson. Yeah, Clemson, Wake Forest, Pittsburgh, auto cannibalize one another. You can throw in University of North Carolina as well with Sam Howell, coached by Mac Brown. That was a very interesting put together group. They needed everything to go right. And then, you know, of course, the Big 12, you need the auto cannibalization of Oklahoma State, Baylor, and Oklahoma. They needed everything to go right. And then they had to be undefeated for what? Basically, three years in a row. Before COVID that season, they had two losses. One in the Houston, another one in the bowl game to a Power 5 school. Then COVID year, they were 9-0. Then had bowl game loss, very close game. Played against Georgia. And then they had to go undefeated again this year. And needed Notre Dame to be good when they played Notre Dame. And luckily Notre Dame was. Let's not I don't, I don't, let's not act like these analysts weren't gaslighting us, man. But let's get to the games and what actually happened, how we got Bam versus Georgia. Because Cincinnati played played very Good football. I mean, the score doesn't show, but 27-6. I mean, it's 21 points. You know, back in old days, we would call that a dubbing, you know. But Alabama wanted no parts of Cincinnati's pass defense. We can start there. That's, that's a good starting point. They wanted no parts of that passing defense with because, I mean, in total, people think the Cincinnati team is bad. But in, to- in total, they have they have six guys with invites to the Senior Bowl. Then you just had Ahmad, a.k.a. Big Dog Sauce Gardner, declare himself eligible for the draft as an underclassman. This is a guy this year who only allowed, who didn't allow more than 20, yard, 20 receiving yards a game. And over these past three years, hasn't allowed anyone to score a touchdown on him. 
So that's was a, a very well put together team. Desmond Ritter was getting has been nods. Yeah, it's a very good team, but unfortunately, it's one of the things that shows where it's not it's not purely SEC football. It's Alabama and the way they can stack four and five star recruits, not just at the skill position. We're talking about on the line, and that's where things have sort of gone down here with the college football playoff that lineman talent has sort of concentrated to about 20, 30 different programs and everybody else is not really getting too much of the scrapings that are left. But yeah, Ben versus Cincinnati, that was, it was, that game was one of the loss in the trenches. Alabama wasn't trying to pass it. I mean, the only pass they took that was more than 10 yards downfield was the one shot they took that scored right for the half that made it that made it a 17-3 game very close game being played shout out Bryce Young I don't I wouldn't have given him the husband this year I would have definitely given it to Kenny Pickett not because of the fake slide but I felt like Kenny Pickett was the best quarterback this year but that's that but yeah Cincinnati just didn't have the front to deal with it Alabama just ran the ball relentlessly on them it, it it wasn't even fun to watch. It was just old-fashioned smash-mouth football, and they just didn't have the guys up front. Then plus, a lot of these coaches don't seem to like to want to change their schemes for some reason. <laughs> Luke Fickle's basically running a, a 3-2-6 monster for defense, and that doesn't work. They never had more than six guys in the box, really. You know? Load up seven guys in the box, dare, dare them to pass it on you with the kind of receivers you got out there. I mean, we've seen the way, we've seen this effectively how Auburn, LSU, and Texas A&M played very good games against it, but nobody wants to repeat it. Georgia didn't want to do it. Cincinnati didn't want to do it. That was it. Cincinnati played. The players on the field played good to their assignments, but the coaches just gave them bad assignments. And that was that. Now on to my fucking disappointment. To these motherfuckers coming out flat as fucking hell. Bad coaching. Players weren't playing up to the standards that they should have. They were just sitting there getting fucking dog shit beat out of them. With no hope. Michigan was just sitting there just taking it. And Georgia was fucking giving it. Oh, were they fucking giving it. Didn't really get too much time for the defense to be off the field either. Niggas were getting tired. I mean, they did scheme to keep to take Aiden Hutchinson out the game. Very good game planning. Game planning by Kirby Smart. I like that. Hey, when you see when you see the other side, just got someone who's a pure monster over there who's with a high motor. Hey, be like, hey, use that motor over there. Hey, I like to see it. I mean... Aiden and David did get some pressures out there. But just a little bit too little too late. DBs weren't playing. Weren't playing all that well. Offense was playing that well. And fucking Harbaugh decides, hey, I'm going to put in McCarthy for the whole fucking second half. Which is sort of the final end of this whole, hey, just squeezing McCarthy in here and there every quarter. Instead of being decided to be like, hey, Either you're going to develop McCarthy be your QB to the future and have him play now or just let the kids sit back and let Cade McNamara do his thing. 
We don't need the uncertainty. But, hey. Harbaugh's going to Harbaugh. But he's also looking at moving on to the NFL now. So, who knows if this season is a one-off for us, if we'll be able to reproduce this next year. Or if we'll even be able to reproduce this when Harbaugh's gone. Depends on who we can bring in. But Georgia played to the standard that we expected them to. Michigan sort of played to the standard that I expected them to. Big letdown. But if Georgia can do this, they can beat Bama in this championship game. It's ooh-wee. They gonna need it. But I think looking at this college playoff, there's one thing that really needs to happen over this whole course. Watching the new, watching some of the New Year's Six as well. I watched bits and pieces of a very wild Rose Bowl game, which I knew I should have watched the game because the Rose Bowl never fucking disappoints. Utah, Ohio State going at it. Then uh, fucking uh, and Jigba Smith went the fuck off. Motherfucker was out of his mind. But we need to get rid of all these fucking bowl games. Just, just chop all that shit the fuck down. There are way too many fucking bowl games. I mean, I just watched Kansas State beat the absolute dog piss out of LSU. Why the fuck are they playing? 6-6 six and six and a 7-16. No one wants to see that shit. We really don't. But that shit's up there for some reason. But Go ahead, expand expand this college football playoff to 12 teams. Get that shit to a good 12. Because that shit definitely will make a big difference. A lot more smaller schools. You have a couple of smaller schools that will get in most seasons. Increase that automatic Cinderella story, Cinderella story opportunity that you have. And fucking, um... And fucking college basketball. So you can make sell tickets on that. You know, get, gives you a good, what, one, two, three, four weeks of college football. A good month to replace the shit show that is college bowl season. Just a whole bunch of just dumb shit going on. Like, but I, I did I did appreciate the Duke, Duke's Mayo Bowl being like, hey, we done with Mayo on niggas. Then. I don't know what the cheese it King was supposed to be about, but that was an interesting sight to see. But yeah, get rid of the rest of these bowl games. Make it 12-team playoff format. I mean, the proposal is put out there. They might approve it this offseason. 12 teams, six highest-ranked conference champion, champions automatically get in. Then six at-large bids. Would be fun to see. Top four teams get a bye week. It would be interesting, but who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But uh, what the tenth? I think that's the tenth. Yeah, Monday. Game's gonna get played for the national championship. We gonna see what's we gonna see what gonna happen. It'll be fun to watch. See if Georgia can redeem themselves. If Bam is just gonna throttle them through the air again. <laughs> We'll see. During this brief intermission, I just wanted to remind all our listeners that we are available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and we also have a Twitter account where you guys can interact with us and catch up with us, see our ideas on some things happening between our podcast episodes. Links will always be down in the description. And now back to the action. All right. 
I'm gonna finish this off. Wanted to go over some things happening in the world of combat sports to end this shit off. Okay. Let's start off. Some big things that happen that we also missed during this time. Alright. Somehow, 39 year old Clay Guida comes out of like, I don't know, I feel like shit. Five, six years of goddamn retirement. Gets his ass beat this whole first round and somehow ends up with a fucking KO. Didn't see that shit coming. The biggest one I don't think anyone saw coming. Juliana Pena. Shocks the fucking MMA fighting world. And stops Amanda Nunez. Just a whole round of just connecting, connecting, connecting. Hitting her, hitting her. Trading. Going, standing toe to toe. Like it's a fucking bare knuckle fighting championship type style. Toe on the line and shit. Then, not even a full, not even a full rear naked choke. Just brute force, whole arm, no hooks in, no body position, no leg hooks, nothing. Just pure, just pure arm choking after, after she gets her down. Shocks the whole world. Then also shocking the world, uh, Kambusas Jr. He gets in an all-out brawl with Teofimo Lopez. Takes that man's belts. Very good fight. If you didn't get to see it, go back and watch it. They were at it. And also, um, another good fight. I mean, we already did a podcast on it when it happened, but uh, go back and watch Terrence Crawford versus Sean Porter. Another, another good brawl in the boxing match. But also, they found they found out. During the fight, well, it happened during the fight, but they found out after the fight, Teofimo Lopez could have actually fucking died. He he's had asthma his whole life since he was like six, so sometimes he he has weird breathing irregularities. Just people with asthma are prone to happen, but what he didn't know is that what actually had happened is that he had a slight allergic reaction to something. That he that he ate, or somehow inhaled, and it caused throat soreness. And that throat soreness caused about a half centimeter to a whole centimeter cut to open up inside his esophagus. And so when he's breathing in air, basically he's creating a pocket of air surrounding the outside of his lungs, surrounding that membrane. So during that course of the fight, literally. Every breath he was taking was actually choking himself to death slowly. And that, because the pressure that builds up from that air, you know, physics, physics, of Combosis Jr. hit him in the right spot with, an, with the right amount of force, could have caused his whole lungs to collapse immediately. Could have possibly died during the ring. Somehow this man didn't. And also, you know, took a took about a week and a half for this information to come out because, you know, the New York Commission Board had to get a had to get a full review and asked one of their former uh, ringside doctors and evaluators, hey, how did we miss this? Are, are, are we just negligent? And then the doctor had to come out and say during the report, when they put out the report, she said, like, hey, this is something that doesn't, that's not going to show up during, during any pre-fight screen for either boxing or MMA. 
just because to find out that this thing has occurred. You literally got it. The person literally has to get like a full x-ray at the hospital. This is something that they don't check, so that was that. But I want to get on to the bigger, more current news happening in the fight game. I'm not going to talk about his second fight. Well, I, I, I will have to talk about his second fight with Tyron Woodley to get a little bit at things. But Jake Paul and Dana White have a full-on fucking beef. Because, well, I will talk about it. Jake Paul is more than likely realizing he's not the draw he thinks he is. And that his whole little I'm a fighter gimmick is quickly coming to an end as quickly as it started. Because, lo and behold, all the numbers that are coming out are basically saying the total amount of pay-per-view buys on TV and streaming it's coming out to less than 100,000 units of buys. He realized he's not the draw he thought he was because his last card was, um, that was, uh, Tyson and, um, Roy Jones Jr. He was under that one. That made him think he had to inflate the numbers, which, you know, 1.5. And then I forgot who else was on the, the Woodley Paul card. The Wood the Woodley vs. Paul card, the first one. That also helped them grind around around uh two hundred, three hundred thousand, even though Paul likes to lie and say they got half a million. And so this is just bad. And that's why he's trying to call out all this and actually UFC star this time and Jorge Masvidal, trying to fight Masvidal. Because you know Masvidal's a big enough draw that it'll make pay per view happen. Masvidal didn't budge, didn't jump into the boxing game, which also, which also Masvidal's like, hey, I'm not fighting you, I, I've, I've been fighting at 170 damn near half my career, well, I'm gonna fight a, fight a guy who comes into the ring around 200 pounds, that's not a smart move, come on now, I mean, but that's all he's been doing is booking guys who fight at extremely low weight classes, Extremely smaller. And also at the end of their fighting careers. And guys who weren't any degree of a striker. I mean, Tyron Woodley can punch, but he's a wrestler. Ben Askin was a very long-time grappling world champion. Who also was on his second hit replacement when they fought. So, yeah. They got Nate Robinson. Come on now. Basketball player. Come on, we saw it. We saw what happened. We saw that. Man, it's not a boxer. But Jake Paul's out here reaching for straws. And I mean, okay. I'll, the reason the 100,000 unit figure stands out is that he's not a draw. Is that, um, okay. So I've been working on a, I'll, I'll get to it with Jake Paul also using a, how underpaid fighters are in terms of revenue sharing the UFC are. I've been working on a project that I'm planning to release soon. Put it together, compiling all the data. All the data for how much money the UFC has actually made off fights and some sponsorships versus how much they've actually paid fighters. Using as much information as, as I can get. As I can get to get a good estimate. 
And let me tell you, the, re- the, re- the revenue share percentage they have is low. I mean, typically revenue share in sports between 40-60%. They, they, ain't, they ain't close to that. It's not good. But he's using that to try to win, to win fight fans over. Try to get himself in. Well, to get to win over some casuals. The extreme casuals. You know, the people who only watch him make fights if Conor McGregor's fighting. He's trying to win over those people. But the reason I can say that Jake Paul not being a draw is a big thing because with me doing working through this project and knowing the numbers getting into workings of how money's divvied up. Basically making under a hundred thousand numbers that are coming out very close to the estimates. It's putting it around that after pay per view the money is split between T V providers and the promotion promoter slash T V channel, which in this the same person as Showtime. So Showtime ended up getting about three to possibly four and a half million. Four and a half million at the top side, but more than likely around three and a half million is the number that Showtime ended up getting off of um pay per view buys. I don't know what the live gate was. Live gate is prob- was probably low as well. But starting off with three and a half million. Alright. So based on things from last fight and some of the things we do know, is that alright? Jake Paul was paid at least a guaranteed million, so the three and a half million. So now cut down. You're now at two and a half million for showtime. Boom. Tyron Woodley like last time, was guaranteed at least half a million. He's probably guaranteed at least half a million again this time. So, boom. Now you're down to two million. Amanda Serrano, who's fighting as the co-main event. Very good hands. Shout out Amanda Serrano. Twitter Serrano Sisters. That's her at. Check her out. She was a guaranteed purse of a quarter million. So now, you yeah, $1.75 million. All right, all right. So, as this works out, and 1.7, 1.75, one and three quarters, you still have to pay out, that's just three fighters out of, out of a what? A 16 fighter card? Everybody else still has to get paid. So, we're just going to say that probably, mm-hmm, probably takes him down to a million and a half. Not yet a million and a half. Probably a million and a quarter, but we're we going to keep it soft. A million and a half after paying out the rest of the fighters. So now, you've only made a million and a half off this. You can factor in the promo you put in the showtime. The promo you put in it at Showtime, paying for the venue, which I could, I I'll, I can look up the venue right now, and let you know approximately how much it cost him right off the top. Because the venue basically, for straight off the top, the venue, however however big the venue is, add ten thousand dollars on that, multiply by two. That. That's how much they they paid they paid 
for that you have to pay just to have that then 15% of whatever the live gate is and so that that would be that so yeah so so $60,000 $60,000 for that arena so yeah if you got that then 15% of whatever the live gate was which if this arena was probably predicting of oh, this is going to be a, a smallly attended event they probably went hey let's not even let's not even do live gate let's just do let's just do hey we want to we want a percentage of your pay for few buys which boom that's kind of that as well so boom yeah and then paying for paying for promotion that's probably at least $100,000 for the physical promo stuff you got to put up around the city to get people to come out. That's $100,000. Then, then you're paying for the prom, promo, getting commercials and stuff around the internet, all of that. That's probably at least another quarter million. And then probably just paying on other staff people, your staff people to be there. Your cameraman and all those people. Uh, probably 50000 for that event. So after all, probably after this event, at the most, Showtime probably made million dollars off of this. That's not good for hosting any kind of fight event. Those are numbers you don't want. Bellator is better than that. And yeah, that's why he's trying to get into fighting. Fighting UFC, he's trying to force his way in, but there's. Nothing he can do. I mean, fighter pay is lower than what it should be. Yeah, I'm going to release something on that in the coming weeks. Going to try to get it done before this next UFC card comes out. And give you guys a decent breakdown of how this money actually flows and things of that such. But, yeah, Jake Paul trying to force his way in. It, it's just not going to happen. It's not good shit. He's out of his mind. His his fighting career has come to an end. The gimmick's over. And then everybody believes he's on steroids as well. He can he couldn't pass. He's not passing a, a water test. It's gonna be bad. But that's that on that. That's into this episode. Signing off, baby. We are hosted live in the Say Less Podcast Discord server. Shout out to the Say Less Podcast of Kaz, Loki, and Rosie. And we are also affiliated with the Otaku Fight Club podcast, hosted by yours truly. And we are also affiliated with the Sips Tea podcast, hosted by Genesis and C Saint, a rapper and a battle rapper out of Buffalo, New York. All the links to everything described here are in the bottom of the description.